Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tyler. Um, I'm one of the uh, elders at City Light, and um, I get to come up here and be a part of this congregation from time to time. And it's a privilege to be here tonight on Mother's Day. Um, We have been going through a series through the book of Isaiah, and we're going to continue that uh, tonight. We're up to chapter 40 which is a great chapter to come to on Mother's Day or really any day of the year. It's a beautiful, fairly well-known chapter, one of the most well-known, familiar chapters in the entire Old Testament, if not the entire Bible. And so we have been tracking right up through Isaiah, and we've had a lot of, we've called the series The Gospel of Isaiah, Judgment and Hope. And if judgment and hope were on opposite sides of a scale... We've definitely been leaning more towards the judgment side of things. Get to chapter 40, and the scales just suddenly tip um, towards, not that there's, there's still ju- notes of judgment there, but the, the emphasis is definitely on hope and restoration and what God is planning to do for his people who he loves. And so that's where we're going tonight. Um, let me just sort of locate this chapter in history. For those of you who heard Harold's message last week, we did 36 to 39, there's this historical section that takes place, it brings us up to around 705 BC, if you're a person that likes dates, if not, just ignore that. Um, we had King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was probably the best king that the southern kingdom of Judah ever had. He, he feared God, he did what God said, he was humble, and In his lifetime, God had rescued him and rescued the people twice. Um, The first time, you had the Assyrian army that had surrounded the city of Jerusalem with hundreds of thousands of enemy troops. They were about to conquer the city. They were threatening them to take them as captives, prisoners of war. And God comes and in one night wipes out 185,000 of their soldiers and saves them. And then shortly thereafter, Hezekiah, their king, who was their leader, falls sick. And and Isaiah tells him, he says, prepare your things, you're going to die of this illness. And he prays to God, he humbles himself before God. And as a result, again, God extends his life by 15 years. And so he's rescued the whole people from enemy attack. And then he rescues the king, King Hezekiah, from death. You would think that Hezekiah was going to sort of finish well. He's seen these two amazing rescues in his own life. And yet, unfortunately, we get to chapter 39 and he doesn't finish well. In fact, the, this envoy comes from Babylon and they want to, you know, they've heard that he's sick and that he recovered. And so they're coming just to say hello and, and make maybe some kind of political alliance with him. And they, he welcomes them in shows them everything, shows them the temple, shows them all the treasuries, and shows them everything they've got in the land, nothing he didn't show them. And as a result, Isaiah comes and says, what have you done, man? You, you've just basically invited your next round, the next round of attacks on the country. It's going to happen. They're going to come. They're going to capture this place. They're going to capture the city. They're going to destroy it, and they're going to take the people into exile. And that's exactly what happened about a hundred years later, about a hundred years to the day after that prophecy was given to Hezekiah, the Babylonians come back with an army and they take God's people into exile. 
they would be in exile and in that place in Babylon for 70 years. 70 years, God's people were out of their land, living in a very uncomfortable, difficult, hard place. And during that time, God's faithful people wait. They wait for those 70 years, that time of exile, that time of discipline to be finished. They, they are waiting for God to come and rescue them again, to restore them back to their place, back to Jerusalem, back to the land. They wait for God to stay true or to fulfill his promises. What's it like to wait? I don't know about you, but if you're like most people, you, you probably don't like to wait. Not many of us like to wait in line. We don't like to wait on the phone, you know, just for, you know, please, are, your call is important to us. No, it's not. You know, we just wait and wait. Um, I, you, know, you know, we wait at red lights. But then there's the things that we actually some kind of maybe enjoy waiting for. It, like if you know something is coming, like you've booked a holiday and it's six months time and the anticipation sort of builds or you're engaged and you're about to get married and it's just, I talked to somebody today, this, just this morning, he said, that's 217 days, man, 217 days and we're walking down the aisle. Like, not that you're counting, but... Yeah, like we get excited for, to wait for some things. You know, we say, oh, I can't wait. But really what we mean is I'm actually enjoying this process of waiting. Um, but then there's other things when if they, what's on the other side is uncertain or unknown or not enjoyable, then waiting can really feel like a form of torture. Um, waiting to get married when there's no prospects or waiting to have children or waiting uh, to hear the test results from the doctors. That kind of waiting for many of us is a form of intense suffering. And probably the kind of waiting that the Israelites, the people of God, were experiencing was more the second kind uh, than the first. They were suffering. In the Bible, God tells us people to learn to wait for him, especially when circumstances are mundane or hard. And remember again, the setting here is that God's people are in exile. The language that's used there in the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 40 is your, your years of days of forced labor. It's almost as if they've gone back to slavery in Egypt, which was their history that God had delivered them out of so many hundreds of years before. They're back there. And Isaiah 40 is a clarion call from God, from God's messengers to God's people to say, stop looking at your circumstances and look at me. Study me. Know me. Believe me. And find comfort. And find comfort. Wait for me to bring my promised future into being. It's the context of Isaiah 40. Now, you may be familiar with the very last verse of the chapter. I don't know if you've ever had, you may have seen it on a coffee mug or on a poster or somewhere on the internet, but here it is. This is from the English Standard Version, Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Many of us have heard that verse before. And in fact, the language of verse 31 is actually really familiar and common in the Bible. 
there are very there are a lot of very similar verses in the Bible, especially in the book of Psalms. Um, for example, Psalm 37, verse 9, says that those who are waiting for the Lord will inherit the promised land. Psalm 25, 3 says that no one who waits for the Lord will be ashamed. Lamentations 3, 25 says that God is good to those who wait for him. These verses all have the same Hebrew word as what we find in Isaiah 40, verse 31. But see, waiting for God is also related to trusting in God. In some of the translations of verse 31, they actually use the word trust and not the word wait. So we, come, we have verses like Psalm 125, 1. Those who wait for or trust in the Lord are like mountains. They're like Mount Zion. You can't move them. That's what it's like for the person who trusts in God. Psalm 34, 10. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 103, verse 13, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Psalm 147, 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. It's one of the key themes of the Bible. Do you want to be revived? Do you want to have endurance to keep running the race that you have been given to run? Do you want to enjoy God and enjoy the good things that he has promised? Do you want to know God's love for you? Do you want to know God's love for you? Then wait on him, trust in him, fear him, seek him, hope in him. And we come back to Isaiah chapter 40 now to get the why. Why do these commands make sense? Why are they not just words on a coffee mug? Why are they worth building your life on? And Isaiah makes it, well, God through Isaiah makes a case here in chapter 40. Why it makes sense to wait on God. I'm going to give you five reasons why waiting on God makes sense, why it's a better choice than not waiting on him. And then I'm going to give you a a biblical example of how this might look in the life of a real person, not just in the abstract. Okay, so here's reason number one from Isaiah chapter 40. Wait on God because God will do what he says he will do. Wait on God because God will do what he says he will do. Isaiah 40, it opens with a... If you can picture these words being sung or spoken by a whole choir or a whole army of messengers singing to you, to God's people. And here's their song. Verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. So you picture this choir singing. They're singing double comfort to a downcast, suffering audience living in exile. People who feel like God cannot see them. People who feel like God has maybe turned his back on them because of their sin. But at just the right time, when they were still powerless, when you were still powerless, here he comes to rescue the ungodly. 
Here he comes into our exile. Here the angel choir starts to sing and says comfort. It's just like, you know, that night in Bethlehem when the angels sang to the shepherds, saying glory to God in the highest. That's exactly what's going on here. Have any of you ever actually watched the live um, performance of Handel's Messiah? Anybody? A few of you? Oh, good. Excellent. Um, I have not. I've only seen it on YouTube, I, but I want to. Um, but that's, this is how Handel's Messiah opens, with these very words from Isaiah chapter 40. It's, it starts with a soloist singing this soulful, emotion-filled solo. And then he builds to this powerful declaration. And the declaration is God saying through these words, I have not forgotten you. Just like in the days of Moses when you were in slavery, I haven't forgotten the promises I made to Abraham. I haven't forgotten the promises I made to David. I won't forget the promise I made through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29.10 to bring you back from exile. This is Jeremiah saying, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. This place is Jerusalem. Isaiah 40 is looking forward to this time when this 70 years is up. And God is going to come and he's going to stay true to his word and he does what he says he was going to do. And in 538 B.C., we know this from history, he did exactly that. It was exactly 70 years after Jerusalem was attacked by Babylon, 608 B.C., seven years later, 538, here they come back to the land. Even though, even though God's people in exile, they were not good. They didn't go to exile and think, oh God, I'm so sorry. They were they were not. They were still worshiping idols, doing some of the same stuff that got them into trouble. They were still doing all those things in exile, and yet God stayed true to his word. And here's what's even better than God bringing him back to Jerusalem. What's even better than bringing his people back to the promised land? Verse 2, he pardons their sins. He forgives them. They were still sinning. They were still ungodly. And he pardons their sins. That's not how things normally work. If you commit a crime, you go to jail, the judge says you're going to stay in jail for a set number of years. Five years, ten years, twenty years. When you get out, when you get out, either for good behavior or you finish the whole thing, you have fulfilled the sentence. But that is not the same thing as a pardon. You still have on your record a thing that says felon. And that will stay there unless someone steps in, a judge or someone with that power and authority steps in and says, maybe the evidence was stacked against you, maybe there was something unjust in the, in the trial, and, and, and decides to issue a pardon. And then it is completely erased from your record. That's what God does here. He's not just saying you can get out of jail, get out of my sight. He's saying you're pardoned. That's even better. It's extraordinary grace. God coming to these people who are still sinning and saying, not guilty. Looking at you and me and saying, not guilty. That's what you will hear from the mouth of God, spoken over you because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And we'll come back to that in a second. Moving on, verse 3. A voice cries 
In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and the flesh shall see all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. These words are also in the Messiah, but they're also recorded somewhere else. They're in the New Testament. These words are associated with a key figure, a key prophet in the New Testament, John the Baptist. He was the one who literally began and conducted his ministry in the wilderness. He was the voice crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way for God. He was telling people, preaching people to repent, to turn back to God because one greater being Jesus, was coming. God was on the move. He was bringing his kingdom. The king himself is coming. Get ready. John the Baptist was preaching down in a valley, down in the Jordan River Valley, and it's, a, it's, a low, it's actually below sea level. He was looking and preaching, his, turned his face toward Jerusalem, which was the, one of the highest points. It's on the watershed of the land. And the land between, if you were to travel from where John the Baptist preached to Jerusalem, it would be up, but it's a very rough country. Lots of hills, lots of rocks just everywhere, narrow valleys. It's dangerous, actually. It was very dangerous in those days to make that journey from where he was down the valley up to Jerusalem, which is where this imagery comes from. He says, when the king comes, when the king comes, he says, every high and you know, obstruction is going to be brought low, every valley is going to be raised up, and it's going to be turned into a flat plain. Why? Because there's got to be room. All flesh, every single person that's ever existed is going to be there on that plain. And who are they going to see? What are they going to see? They're going to see the glory of God and the coming of Jesus. And that's what John the Baptist was sent to tell people and to warn people and to say, Jesus is coming and you are going to see him one day. Paul saw the same thing. Paul saw the same thing. He said, one day, every knee is going to bow. They are on that plane. They're going to, every, all flesh will together see the glory of God in the coming of Jesus. And this is in the context of comfort. This is not a scene from an epic movie. Friends, this is your future. You are in this scene. Whether you believe it or not, you are in this scene. And you will be there and you will either experience the comfort of the coming of your king or you will cower in fear, depending on the state of your soul, whether or not your sins have been forgiven. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. It says down in verse 8, every word that's ever spoken, including my words, your words, every word that's ever spoken will fade into obscurity except for the word of God, which stands and lives on forever. God's not slow in keeping his promises. You'll be there on that plane before you know it. God will do what he says he will do. Wait for him. Second reason why waiting for God makes sense. Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. I don't know if any of you have ever met someone who is a renowned fighter, either in sport or in military battles. 
At least in the movies, people who are, you know, conquering generals, they're not known for their winning personality. They're not known as being people who are approachable. They're, they're battle-hardened. They don't, you know, have emotions. Or they suppress them. That's at least the stereotype, right? And yet here, Jesus, the conquering king, listen. Behold, the Lord comes with might. His arm rules for him. Okay, so the picture there is literally of Jesus with like bulging biceps, right? His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense is before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Huh? Like all of a sudden we've switched images from this like, you know, conquering dude to like the nurturing lamb guy. How do these two things go together? They go together in Jesus. He's co- this is how he rescues us. He's coming, it says, with his reward. What's his reward? It's salvation for his people. It's judgment for his enemies. Both things exist in Jesus. The same Strong arms that God will use to judge sin and evil and all of his enemies are the same strong arms that hold you. He knows everything about you. I love this image that he will gently lead those that are with young. Why, why, would, he, why would he do that? Well, if you know, a sheep that's got a, a young lamb is going to go slower, it can't keep up. See, Jesus knows this. He knows you. He knows your situation. He leads you just the right pace at just the right time in just the right way. This is a God worth waiting for. He cares for you. Third thing, because he fills every space, because he fills every space and he's the source of all knowledge, he's worth waiting for, makes sense to wait for him because he fills every space and he is the source of all knowledge. Waiting for God is not like waiting for the bus. See, because a bus can only inhabit one space at a time. It's going to get there when it gets there. If you're one of those people that likes to grumble and check your phone, thinking that that's not going to make the bus get here any quicker. That's not what it's like to wait on God. It's not what it's like at all. Because God inhabits every space, meaning that he's never far. He's never far away. He's never stuck in traffic. Isaiah tells us here that every single molecule of water in existence could fit where? In the hollow of his hand. God doesn't have literal hands. This is a metaphor to talk about just how big God is, how all-encompassing he is. He says here that he can measure the universe with a span. You know what a span is here? It's the, the distance between the end of your thumb and your pinky finger when you do this. And God says he can just measure the universe like that. It's amazing. It's 20 centimeters about this average distance. I looked this up. The universe is pretty wide. Some scientists estimate that it's around 156 billion light years wide. I am not a scientist, so that number doesn't mean a lot to me. So I had to research how long, like how many kilometers is a light year? 9.5 trillion, one light year. 
times 156 billion. That's how wide the universe is, and God can just go, yep. And he knows it down to the nanometer. Reason scientists estimate how wide the universe is is because we don't have a span that's big enough. No one has ever seen this with their own eyes, but God has. In verse 13, it says that God can weigh the earth the way that we weigh coffee beans. What about the nations with all their armies and missiles and technology and money? These were the, the nations, the, the, the surrounding armies. That was the thing that Israel really got nervous about. They're like a drop from a bucket to God. That expre- I don't know if you've ever used that expression, drop from a bucket, but first recorded here. That's where it comes from. It comes from the King James Bible. The nations are insignificant. They count for nothing compared to the glory and majesty of God. See, here's the overall theological argument of this passage of chapter 40. He's saying, God, you, you, the, all the things that you take comfort in, all the things that you worry about, you can't compare any of those things to God. God is bigger, better, more powerful, more terrifying, more beautiful than any of those things. We're so used to looking to other people for wisdom and answers and support and help, to friends, teachers, experts, celebrities. We, we try to figure out what should I think about this or how should I act in this situation. But God, it says, doesn't do that. He doesn't look to anyone. He is his own standard. Verse 14, who did he consult? Who taught him? Who showed him the way? Absolutely no one. He is the source of all knowledge, all wisdom, all authority, all power. And to think that he's given us such a perfect deposit of wisdom and revelation in his word, in the Bible. There's no amount of human knowledge, of information or technique or philosophy that can compare with what God knows and what God chooses to reveal. All the truth that we're left to discover that's not in the Bible, that truth comes from him. It belongs to him. All that truth is dependent on him. So in short, God's bigger than you, he's smarter than you, wait for him. Third reason, fourth reason, wait for God because he is able to help you. God is able to help you. How many of you have ever been in a stranded, broken down vehicle before? A few of you? Okay. I have just this year on Australia Day. My van broke down. I thought I had a flat battery. Turns out I just ran out of petrol good with cars. Um, I was stuck there on a very hot day with very grumpy children waiting for roadside assist for two hours. Why would I wait for such a long time? Um, Well, because I trust that when roadside assist or when the RA shows up, that they are able to help me. Okay? I'm not, you know, if I didn't believe that, if I didn't believe they were able to help me, then I wouldn't wait. Or maybe I'd, you know, open the, what do you call it, the bonnet of the, the van myself and just start, you know, ripping things apart and just messing around with my lack of knowledge and thinking, well, maybe this will help. But no, I wait for someone who knows what they're doing. What about God? Can he help you when you're in need? 
God makes the case here in Isaiah 40, but he makes it in the negative. He doesn't, you know, he's not selling, he doesn't sell himself like, you know, yes, call me when you're in hell. He actually makes a negative case here. He says, I'm going to show you the inadequacy of the typical things that you turn to for help. So he starts first with uh, false religion, man-made religion, idols. Why do you think people took such care and spent such time and money to carve idols? Out of gold, they'd spend a lot of resources here. And if they didn't have money for gold, says they'd make it out of wood. Because the people who did this thought that having an idol would help them. It would focus their prayers for blessing and they would get rain and a good crop and they wouldn't get sick and all of these things. And in in their minds, having an idol is like having an insurance policy. It's worth the cash. It's worth the time just in case. See, the second thing that people can turn to if man-made religion fails is relationships. Other people can help you. Other people, just like idols, can become substitutes for God. That's why Isaiah reminds us here about the truth about people. He says they're like what? What does he compare them to? He compares them to tiny grasshoppers. Grasshoppers. Tiny compared to God. He says their emptiness, the rulers of the nations are emptiness compared to God. They're like dandelion fluff. Here today, gone tomorrow, compared to God. Who never changes who has no beginning, he has no end. Now think back again to being broken down by the side of the road. Would you call on the grasshoppers to help you? Would you call on the dandelions? Would you take your chances and start taking the engine apart yourself? Or would you wait for the one you knew without a doubt could help you because he's good to those who wait for him? God doesn't just know what's wrong with your car, by the way. Verse 26 says he knows the name of every star. Every star. 200 billion stars in just our galaxy alone. And he knows the name of every one. In the observable universe, the number of stars explodes to, I found this on the internet, so it's true, one billion trillion. I don't know what that means. I don't know how many zeros that is, but one billion trillion. The light from the vast majority of those stars will never, ever be seen by a human eye. And yet God sees them all. He calls all of them by name, and he says one at a time, not one is missing. Wait for God, because he is able to help you. Finally, wait for God because he won't stop until all his sheep are safely home. Getting close to the end now. We've already seen that God will do what he says he will do, that he cares for you, that he's the source of all knowledge and wisdom, that he is able to help you. So what's the conclusion? Is the conclusion of this chapter that you, my friend, are going to rise up on wings like eagles because you are awesome? No. That's often how this chapter is preached, but that is not what it means. It's not what it says. It's what happens when we rip verses out of context and turn them into trinkets. We miss the power 
miss the beauty of the Bible. It's not about how awesome I am or you are or how awesome we will be. Isaiah 40 is from beginning to end about God bringing, breaking into our awesomelessness, into our exile from His presence, into our rebellion and saying, comfort, I'm here, I will rescue you. Let's just read it here from verse 29, 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. How many of you have been there before? You're thinking, God, you don't know my situation. You don't know my circumstances. You don't see me. You don't know my pain. You don't know what I've been through. Have you not heard God speaking to you and me? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to people like you and me who are faint. To him who has no might, that's you and me, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. If we put these verses in context, you will not come across, come away with the image of the mighty me sprinting across the finish line. That's not the image here. You will not come away with the image of the mighty me soaring above the storm. That's not the image here. Isaiah 40 is for people who are weak and faint and desperate for God. Desperate for his help. Desperate for his comfort. Desperate for his strength. Who does he give his power and his strength and his comfort to? It's not to the ones who just need a little boost in the arm. He gives to the faint, to those who have nothing, to the ones who are passed out on the ground like that. I don't know if you saw the guy, the marathon runner in the, in the Commonwealth Games, just like, that's the image here. That's you. That's me. We're passed out. We cannot run any, anymore. That's the person that God comes to, the poor in spirit. They are the ones who mount up on wings like eagles. And here's what the songs and posters don't tell you. Those eagle's wings are not your wings. They're not mine. They're his. They're not your legs. They're his. The glory of victory is not yours. It's his. There's a reason why when you finish the race, when you're safely home, Jesus doesn't say to you, well done, champion. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. My dependent, beloved child, my sheep. And he won't rest, he won't slow down until every single one of you is safely on. So what does it look like to wait for the Lord? I know for many of us, if we've heard this before, we think, okay, sure, wait for God. Does it just mean we just pray and pray and pray until then he eventually does what we want him to do? Is that waiting for God? There's not a one-size-fits-all answer to this question. But I wanted to look, since it is Mother's Day, I wanted to look briefly at a mother in the Bible who waited on God. Who waited on God, and it's a beautiful story. Just want to tell it briefly, make a couple of observations. The mother's name is Hannah. You may know her story. She's the mother of the prophet Samuel, and her story is found in the book of 1 Samuel, chapters 1 and 2. And I'm not going to read it because it's just for time's sake, but I'll summarize it for you. Hannah was married to a man named Elkanah who had two wives. So Hannah was one wife, and he had another wife named Penina. And Penina was able to have children with her husband. Hannah was not. 
able to have children. But for, the Bible tells us that Elkanah uh, favored Hannah. He, he loved her more than his other wife. And because of that, his other wife, Penina, despised Hannah and tormented her daily. The Bible says this situation, this circumstance, went on year after year after year. And as often as Hannah would pray to God to change her situation, Penina would torment her. Not even her husband could understand or empathize with his grieving wife. And one year, she goes to the house of God to pray. She's so desperate for a son that she makes a vow to God. This is what she prayed. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. She said, she vowed a vow to God and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. I will dedicate him, as we saw just a moment ago. I will dedicate him to the Lord all the days of his life. She's so desperate in that prayer. She's so desperate in grief and anguish that when Eli, the priest, who's there at the the house of God, when he sees her praying, he just sees her mouth moving and he thinks that she's drunk. And he comes over to tell her off and kind of kick her out. Hannah has to convince him, no, I'm not drunk, I'm just grieving. And he blesses her. Eli blesses her and asks God to grant her request. And at that moment, Hannah's heart, the disposition of her heart changes. She says she's no longer sad because she knew that God heard her. She knew that God heard her. And she goes home with her husband, and in due time, the Bible says, she conceives a son, and she names him Samuel. Now, some of us will stop there and think, that's it. That's what it looks like to wait on God. Just pray long enough or get the right guy to pray for me or, or you know, pray in the right way, and God will give me what I want. End of story. We all live happily ever after. But that's not the point of this story. It's not what it means to wait on God. Because the more you understand the story, the more you understand there's a lot more going on. Hannah was praying for a son. But Samuel, her son, was not just the answer to a desperate mother's plea. He was the answer to a prayer that no one was praying. The nation needed a leader. They needed to hear from God. And so God sent them Samuel. Hannah had vowed, you see, to give Samuel to the Lord. And as soon as he's weaned, about three years old, she takes him back to Eli the priest and says, here I am, I was the one that was praying, that you thought was drunk, it was me. This this boy, this is who I was praying for. Here he is, I'm giving him back to the Lord just like I vowed for the rest of his life. I don't know what it would take for me as a parent or for a mother who had been so desperate for a son to be so courageous now. You can think of so many things that she could, God, you you didn't, yeah, I didn't really mean that. You know, you surely can't expect me to give him up. But she, she doesn't hesitate. She knew the one who had granted her request. She knew that he's a God who does what he says he will do, that he tenderly cares for his sheep, that he will care for her son, that he's in 
good hands. She knew that he, God fills every space, including the emptiness in her own heart. She knew that God was able to help her, and he did when she was childless. And he helped her when she had to say goodbye. She knew that God would not rest until all of his children are safely home. And the home that she was waiting for was not the one with the picket fence and the 2.1 kids. Family, the home she longed for, was the home that God was preparing for her. Eternal, glorious joy. Her hope and her joy was not having a son inside the walls of her own home. But her joy was in God. Hannah returns home with empty hands, but with an overflowing heart. She sings with joy, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn, or my strength, is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because, why? Because I rejoice in your salvation. She goes on to pray this prayer of astounding faith and power. This is a woman who knew God who took God at his word, who knew his love for her and for all people, who knew that he is everywhere and that he knows everything, that he can help not only to open a barren womb, but he can bring life from the dead. She knew that he wouldn't rest until all his enemies were defeated. His people were saved according to his promise. Her waiting on God gave birth not just to a son, but to joy. And that was the fuel of her worship and the song of her courageous obedience. She waited on God. He heard her. He lifted her up for his glory and for your joy. Be like Hannah. Wait. Trust. Hope. Because he won't stop loving you until you're safely on. Let's pray. Lord, teach us. Teach us now to wait for you. Teach us to to know you, to study your word. Teach us to believe your promise that you're good to those who wait for you, that you who calls every single star by name knows our hearts and our desires and our needs and our future. Thank you that at just the right time, while we were still powerless, you sent your one and only son to die for us, the ungodly, for us who were your enemies. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who, like Hannah, saw the joy before him and endured the cross, scorned its shame, and is now seated at your right hand forever. Thank you that because of his obedience, his courageous obedience, we can be forgiven and reconciled to you forever. Teach us to revel in that comfort. Teach us to wait for you as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.